Welcome to FRT, the IAS podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Renier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IAF. I'm here today with Fabian Astic. Fabian serves on Moody's Investor Service Senior Leadership Team as Managing Director and Global Head of Decentralized Finance and Digital Assets. He and his group are responsible for digital finance across the rating agency. Moody's has rated a number of digital bonds and published a lot of research on various aspects in digital finance, from specific digital assets to sector comments and interaction between crypto finance and traditional finance, and in particular, since the creation of the DeFi and Digital Assets Department last year. Before that, among many other roles, Fabian was in charge of quantitative analytics and innovation for Moody's Investor Service. Welcome, Fabian. Let's start off today with just a bit of background on your work, if you can share a bit about your journey. Sure. Moody's has been monitoring the blockchain and digital asset space for a while. And as we engaged with market participants, we heard that the two major hurdles preventing the mass adoption of blockchain technology were one, the lack of connections across blockchain environments, and two, the lack of regulatory clarity. There's been some pretty good momentum on both fronts, and the digitalization has been accelerating thanks to that. So last year, we decided to go from passive monitoring to active engagement, if you will, and created the DeFi and Digital Assets Group to lead our preparedness strategy, both from analytical perspective and from a business perspective, getting ready as a business because when our stakeholders tell us they want to interact with us digitally on the blockchain or a distributed ledger technology platform, we have to be ready. And it requires upstream a lot of process work, data and technology controls and risk management work. And of course, analytically, we want to help market participants understand all the new risks out there and how they interact with more traditional financial risks. And the scope of our analysis goes from the digital infrastructure that is evolving thanks to emerging technologies like DLT to native digital assets that exist because there are technologies like blockchain to digital exposure in the sense that many existing traditional structures are now exposed to new digital risks. And we need to analyze how credit profiles could be impacted at the entity level, at the sector level, and at the macroeconomic level. So let's talk a little bit about the shifts from year to year that we have recently seen. So in 2021, we saw a really rapid, uh, I'd say largely speculative pricing innovation, just a rapid growth of digital asset sphere and a lot of volatility and, and increases in the price. 2022, we saw what I'd call kind of a reckoning that was much needed to address some of that speculation and to really cause us to think about what are we really focusing on in terms of the value going forward. And I think just in the natural curve of innovation, right, there are a lot of entities that perhaps were operating in the sphere that simply needed to be looked at, adjusted, and perhaps removed from the market to leave those that were more of a long-term economic value add to the market. So then 2023, we're really left thinking almost, let's get real about this, right? Let's focus on what the real long-term value is and where these things are gonna be useful for. So how do we think about the future of financial infrastructure and the financial instruments that exist with Within it, and how have you seen these things develop from a market perspective with respect to digital assets? 
Well, great way to summarize the past two, three years, Jess. And I know that the space can be somewhat confusing. So let's start with a quick recap of the main types of digital currencies, because I'll be using a lot of those definitions going forward. So the first type of digital currencies is what we call unbacked cryptocurrencies, which are attempts at creating decentralized forms of money without the involvement of central banks. And this category includes the famous Bitcoin and Ether, as well as many others. There are more than 20,000 cryptocurrencies. The second type of digital currencies is stablecoins. Stablecoins are designed so that the value is always pegged to a reference asset or a basket of reference assets, like the US dollar, for instance. And the most common ones are cash-backed stablecoins, which are backed by cash and high-quality liquid assets. Other stablecoins could be backed by various assets, including other cryptocurrencies, and other stablecoins called algorithmic stablecoins, like the Terra stablecoin, which collapsed in May of 2022, are stablecoins that are not backed by any assets. Instead, an algorithm is supposed to continuously balance demand and supply to maintain the peg to the reference asset. The third main type of digital currencies is tokenized deposits, which is essentially bank deposits as we know them, but transferred to a blockchain platform. And finally, the fourth category is central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs in short, which is virtual money issued and backed by a central bank. Now you have two types of CBDCs, retail and wholesale. Wholesale CBDCs are not fundamentally new. They are used to settle transactions among eligible financial institutions, and financial institutions can already settle payments today in central bank money, and all of it is already done electronically. What's really new here is retail CBDCs, which are accessible to the general public. It means that you and I, Jess, could get money directly from the central bank. In most parts of the world, like here in the US and in Europe, the only central bank money that's available to individuals like us would be banknotes and coins. So we do have access to digital money, but it's not central bank money, it's commercial bank money, which is a claim on the bank's holding our accounts, not a claim on the central bank. And tokenized deposits are actually part of that digital commercial money bucket. Now, to get back to your question about the trend, the discussions have clearly shifted from pure crypto to tech stack to power financial systems better, faster, and more efficiently, and to the digital currencies needed to fuel that new ecosystem. And the success of the various digital coins, if you will, will depend on their ability to satisfy the three fundamental functions of money, namely medium of exchange, store of value, and unit of account. And our view is that commercial bank money will likely remain the most popular instrument for individuals, including, of course, in digital form, which includes tokenized deposits. We expect its retail usage to decline modestly as alternative digital monies gain traction, we also anticipate that CBDCs will become more popular. Stablecoin usage may increase, but we do not expect unbacked cryptocurrencies to become widely used. So how do you explain this trend? And in particular, why are you not expecting unbacked cryptocurrencies to play a bigger role? One of the main reasons why the discussions have moved from unbacked cryptocurrencies to other types of digital currencies is because Unbacked cryptocurrencies have not been great at satisfying the three functions of money that I just mentioned. First, unbacked cryptocurrencies are not a great medium of exchange, at least for now. 
as I said earlier, you have over 20,000 cryptocurrencies out there, many of which have limited liquidity. The two main ones, Bitcoin and Ether, have adequate trading volumes, but they sometimes suffer from high transaction fees, which occur when there are not enough computers to validate transactions. And for instance, the average Bitcoin transaction cost jumped to nearly $63 on April 21st of 2021. On top of that, Bitcoin and Ethereum can only process respectively about five and 15 to 20 transactions per second, whereas Visa, for example, processes more than 65,000. Of course, this can change, and Ethereum developers, for example, claim that Ethereum will be able to process more than 100,000 transactions per second after a series of upgrades on their technology roadmap. Also, the decentralized nature of cryptocurrencies is supposed to eliminate counterparty risk, but in practice, it's proven challenging to store cryptocurrencies safely. And it's true with self-custody, which is, of course, not cyber risk proof. And it's true with wallet keys kept with custodians, since the custodians can go bankrupt, and of course, they're also subject to cyber risk. Another issue today with unbacked cryptocurrencies is that they are relatively inefficient um, as a store of value because their prices are very volatile. And now, stable coins were created as a response to the high volatility of unbacked cryptocurrencies. Cashback stable coins are, at least in theory, pretty good candidates for digital cash with a few caveats. First, we've seen DPEG events, meaning that even though a dollar stablecoin is always supposed to be worth $1, it has not been true 100%. It's been very marginal for the major stablecoins, but DPEG events exist. And on March 10th of this year, the price of USD coin fell below 90 cents on some exchanges, following the announcement that Circle, its operator, had more than $3 billion of deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. In addition, a lot of jurisdictions have come up with or are coming up with regulatory frameworks for stablecoins. It's useful, as we said in one of our reports last year, in order to put stable back in stablecoin. In particular, it will help with reporting requirements as well as investment rules for the portfolios of assets backing stablecoins. On the other hand, of course, the more prescriptive those requirements are, the more expensive the structures are to maintain which makes it hard to compete with other digital currencies like tokenized deposits and CBDCs, especially for smaller operators. And finally, I will note that individuals widely trust commercial bank money in most countries, in particular because of all the strict rules and regulations banks are subject to, with even higher standards for some global financial institutions because of their systemic importance. And on top of that, Commercial banks have access to central banks to manage liquidity, and most developed countries have bank deposit guarantee programs up to $250,000 here in the US and 100,000 euros in the EU, for instance. Okay, so let's focus in then on 2023 again and looking forward, getting real about the usefulness of various digital assets and digital currencies in, in particular. And, and really this gets back to the question of the, the purpose of any given payment mechanism to solve a clear economic need in the economy. So how are you thinking about what that need is for, for any one of these instruments? I like your question and I'd like to go one step back to the fundamental question, which is why do we even need digital currencies? 
and I like to group use cases in two categories. The first one is payment systems. The second one is fuel for the upcoming digital economy. So let's start with payments. The efficiency of current payment systems can be improved and costs can be significantly reduced, especially for cross-border payments. An interesting study by Oliver Wyman and JP Morgan in 2021 stated that global corporates move nearly $23.5 trillion across countries annually. And they added, to do this, they have to rely on wholesale cross-border payment processes, which remain suboptimal from a cost, speed, and transparency standpoint. The cost of those transfers is estimated to be $120 billion a year and the average settlement time to clear a cross-border transaction is two to three days. Moving from corporates to individuals, a study by the World Bank in September of last year shows that globally sending remittances costs an average of 6.3% of the amount sent. And according to the UN, roughly one person out of nine globally relies on funds sent home by migrant workers. The World Bank study also says that banks remain the most expensive type of service providers with an average cost of 11.69%. And finally, zooming in on the US, the White House released a fact sheet last year stating that roughly 7 million Americans have no bank account and that another 24 million have to rely on costly non-bank services like money orders. Digital currencies can help reduce those costs as well as transfer times as they have the potential to, to be widely available transferable around the world 24 7 365 days a year and can even be programmable now digital currencies are not the only solution instead payment systems like FedNow in the us and other nearly instant payment systems developed in australia mexico in the eu to name a few as well as additional rules uh, around instant payments being developed in europe for instance can address a lot of those inefficiencies however most financial institutions have been slow to commercialize instant payment services as they are torn between monetizing them and minimizing the impact on existing sources of revenue. Overall, we believe that digital wallets, which enable users to store and transfer digital assets, will support the dominance of digital commercial bank money as long as bank accounts remain their primary source of digital currency. Tokenized deposits will also likely support the use of commercial bank money. However, this technology is still new and only a few banks have been experimenting with them. Also, it's worth noting that tokenized deposits could be a less reliable funding source for banks because depositors could move them at all times. What it means is that proper guardrails are needed for tokenized deposits, which are naturally riskier than central bank money. Stablecoins, like other digital currencies, are also a good potential tool for efficient, cheap cross-border payments. But today, there's still mainly crypto for crypto, used either to trade cryptocurrencies or as collateral in crypto lending programs. They're subject to a lot of policy and regulatory work globally because of their role as a bridge between the crypto finance world and the real economy. They are subject to run risk, which could lead to instability in the traditional financial world if the stablecoin issuer suddenly has to liquidate the real-world assets that back the stablecoin, and the risk is amplified without the guarantee that banks' deposits benefit from, and it's also magnified by the transparency provided by blockchain platforms, as anyone can see at any point in time when others redeem their stablecoins. And finally, CBDCs are also a good candidate for cross-border payments, 
and there is quite a lot of work being done in the space with the Bank for International Settlements leading a lot of that work. For example, Project Icebreaker with the BIS and the central banks of Israel, uh, Sweden, and Norway is the first of its kind examining the cross-border interoperability of retail CBDCs. What it showed is that it is technically feasible to interlink several retail CBDCs, all using different distributed ledger technologies, actually leading to better exchange rates. At the same time, significant research has been done in terms of cross-border interoperability of wholesale CBDC, which would, one, improve payment efficiency, two, simplify the process of foreign exchange, and three, reduce costs. The idea here is to use DLT to modernize the current wholesale payment systems and to link them to each other, or even to introduce a new wholesale payment system altogether. This would allow banks to make, clear, and settle cross-border payments at low cost and in seconds without needing to sign up to multiple payment systems or even rely on correspondent banks. So what about the role of digital currencies as the fuel for the upcoming digital economy? I mean, I think about the economy as um, uh, just everything is digital. So at this point, even saying digital economy sounds funny to me, but what what about you know digital currencies as that really critical underlying layer? So more and more market participants believe that the future will be tokenized. And tokenization is essentially the process of transforming real assets and the legal rights that come with them into digital tokens represented, stored, exchanged, and tracked on a blockchain. The assets could be anything from a bond or a stock to a building or a painting. Among the benefits of tokenization are increased liquidity, fractional ownership, transparency and data integrity, and faster settlement. But to do all of that digitally from A to Z and to leverage all the benefits of those digital assets without going back and forth between digital world and non-digital world, which costs time and money, you need some digital cash. And that could be any of the digital currencies we talked about, stablecoins, tokenized deposits, CBDCs. Interestingly, policymakers and regulators around the world are working on that digital economy too, uh, in particular for DLT securities. In March of this year, in the EU, for instance, the DLT pilot regime was launched, and it's essentially a regulatory DLT sandbox, which allows all sorts of activities related to tokenized financial instruments, including issuance, storage, trading, and settlement. In practice, though, you can't really do everything digitally in the sandbox, as there is virtually no digital cash for it yet. No digital euro yet, no tokenized deposits really, and almost no euro-denominated stablecoins, even though the EU regulatory framework called MICA, which will be effective next year, imposes a cap on USD stablecoins, which likely are almost 99% of all stablecoins today. To conclude on the token economy, we'd like to share some interesting feedback we've gathered engaging with market participants. A lot of market participants are getting more and more knowledgeable and ready for digital financial markets, including regulators and issuers of securities that have technologists, lawyers, and structures to issue and work on those digital assets. But on the investor side, it's still very confusing, and many investors think 
blockchain equals Bitcoin equals FTX equals tokenized deposits. And they're thinking, hmm, I'm not getting close to that. So there is a lot of education work needed across financial markets to get some form of convergence between digital assets, supply and demand. So a number of jurisdictions have taken various stances in their research in terms of just how far they are into looking at various digital currencies to date. Bank of England has been uh, a little bit forward-leaning and thinking that a digital pound may be necessary in the future at some point. The ECB was somewhat aggressive out of the gate, certainly last year at least, on on a digital euro and has slightly moderated its comments a little bit more recently with a reminder that you know it hasn't in fact decided to to launch a digital euro but that you know it's looking into further research and pilots and it would take some time but certainly is more a bit more aggressive in its stance the US has outlined various thoughts you know under secretary lang of the treasury gave a speech some time ago on pros and cons and potential points of research, but still very to be determined a bit. And then you have the BIS that has outlined a, a vision of a unified programmable ledger that may include central bank digital currency, as well as tokenized deposits and tokenized assets all within that unified ledger. So let's take CBDCs just first. How are you thinking about CBDCs with all of this background? What's clearly needed is some form of digital cash. And as discussed, there are several versions of it. Whether CBDCs should be one of them is mainly a political and geopolitical decision, which includes monetary sovereignty and financial inclusion dimensions. So I'm thinking about four main reasons why governments are considering CBDCs. First reason, cash has been declining. In many countries, the usage of coins and banknotes sharply declined during the COVID-19 pandemic and has not recovered yet. In the US, for example, only 20% of payments in 2021 were made with cash, down from 31% in 2016. And in China, only 10% of install payments are made with cash. Second reason, threat to monetary sovereignty and financial stability due to cryptocurrencies, both unbacked and stable coins. If having a cell phone is all you need to have access to a private cryptocurrency, it may make it very hard for governments to implement their monetary policies. And there is also the stability risk I mentioned earlier, which I illustrated with the risk of runs on stable points. Third reason, make their currencies more influential globally and reduce their reliance on foreign networks. Fourth reason, support innovation in payments, and it's related really to everything we talked about earlier about payment systems. Mass adoption is clearly not guaranteed, especially in Western economies. Of course, CBDCs don't carry any credit risk per se, but in economies with robust banking systems, people may not have much interest in it. And in most Eurozone countries, for instance, unbanked individuals represent less than 1% of the population. In addition to that adoption question, the retail CBDC comes with some serious disruption risk for the banking world as we know it. At the end of the day, if I can get my money from the central bank with virtually no credit risk, why would I leave my money with banks that do carry their own credit risk? In particular, when things go bad in the economy, people tend to turn to safer assets, for instance, CBDCs, 
which could increase the risk of rotten backs. To mitigate the disintermediation risk, central banks in the EU and the UK, for instance, are introducing caps on CBDCs available to individuals. And the design of CBDCs will likely facilitate payment efficiencies without reducing credit creation in the economy for which banks need bank deposits. Finally, a retail CBDC would need to balance protecting people's privacy with the transparency necessary to monitor and fight criminal activity. It would also have to be highly resilient to cyber threats, which could be challenging because the CBDC network could have more entry points than existing payment services. Interestingly, recent CBDC rollouts have not been that successful. For instance, only 0.5% of Nigerians used the country's CBDC in October 2022, and such usage has not significantly improved since, even though the country is struggling with the cash uh, shortage. As for China, in December of last year, the former central bank official expressed disappointment that the country's digital yuan was seeing little use. Because of the risks and limitations of retail CBDCs that I just listed, some central banks prefer to roll out wholesale CBDCs, and I mentioned Brazil earlier as an example. And for those that are not exploring wholesale CBDCs or have already decided that they would not have a wholesale CBDC, it's worth noting that the lack of DLT-powered wholesale CBDC could fragment uh, settlement infrastructure. What I mean here is that many market participants are experimenting with DLT to modernize their infrastructure, in particular for security settlement. And if the market continues to adopt DLT for settlement and no DLT wholesale CBDC is available, they may use alternative options like tokenized deposits and stable coins instead. But in turn, you're adding a layer of risk that would not exist with the wholesale CBDC because of the risks that come with the tokenized deposit or the stablecoin issuer, which could affect the overall credit quality of the settled debt instrument. So let's dive into that on, on infrastructure. And in particular, I'm thinking about interoperability between infrastructures. Obviously, various jurisdictions have forged ahead at different uh, rates in their research and development and some of their pilots, whether it is with respect to CBDCs or even if you're thinking about private sector solutions that have been created without necessarily the imagination for or the desire for perhaps some interoperability within other systems quite yet. How do you, you know, think about, of course, when, when people think about challenges to interoperability, then you kind of default to thinking, well, what if there's one big, you know, one ledger, right? And this gets us back to the idea of a unified programmable ledger. What do you think about the, just the concept of unified ledgers in, in general and, and how we might think about that going forward? The idea of a global unified ledger is very interesting, but when you see that decisions with respect to a CBDC here in the US are not made yet, and in the EU, different bodies can't agree on retail versus wholesale CBDC, the idea of a universal ledger seems hard to achieve. That being said, as Project Icebreaker showed, as well as a number of other global initiatives, countries and market participants can agree on governance and rules of engagement, even if they use different technologies. And that could be a game changer for a 
safer development of the digital backend plumbing that will power the financial markets of tomorrow. Those rules of governance and connectivity across DLT platforms are very relevant from a counterparty and credit risk perspective as well. As of now, the various platforms and DLT services are very different and provided by very different market participants from giants of the financial industry to small startups. You need to think about those added layers of risk in the credit chain. Similarly to wholesale CBDCs removing a layer of risk in securities settlement, agreeing on rules that would make the digital infrastructure safe and sound would remove a layer of risk from the digital economy. Let's wrap up this session with a little bit about DeFi. Is there a future for decentralized finance in all of this? First, let me remind everybody that DeFi or decentralized finance is a pretty small subset of digital finance. It's the part of digital finance where only computers talk to each other and traditional intermediaries are replaced by smart contracts. As of now, it is a pretty small space, roughly $50 billion. And overall, it's still crypto for crypto only, and it highly depends on cryptocurrency trading prices and volumes. For DeFi to grow, first, crypto prices and trading volumes need to stabilize. But to significantly scale up, it needs to expand beyond cryptocurrencies. It would need to include all the other digital assets we've talked about, asset and security tokens and tokenized deposits, for instance. DeFi could be an efficient way to power the global economy going forward. And for it to happen, back to our previous point, safe and sound digital infrastructure is needed. And of course, efficient ways to regulate DeFi will need to be designed and implemented. Well, there you have it. Thank you very much, Fabian, for being with us today and for sharing your views on digital currencies and financial infrastructure and the future of DeFi. Thank you very much to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of FRT. We look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. And you can always check them out, of course, on the IAF website as well at IAF.com.